Hello and welcome to Heroes Unmasked, staff stories from Leeds Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust with me, Caroline Verdon. Here's a question for you. What do champion fencers, award-winning sheep farmers and professional rugby players have to do with Leeds Teaching Hospitals? Answer? They all work for the hospitals. This series goes behind the scenes to meet directors, doctors, support staff and everyone in between to find out who the people behind the masks really are. Welcome to episode two. So as ever, please do click follow, rate and review if you like what you hear, because on this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Agam Jung. Now, she is a consultant neurologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust, and she's also the director of the Leeds Regional Motor Neurone Disease Care Centre. She's perhaps most well known for being Rob Burrow's consultant and also one of the driving forces behind the appeal for the Rob Burrow Centre for Motor Neurone Disease. What a lot of people don't know about her, though, is that she actually spent three months living in a leper colony. This was a part of my internship, actually. So when I graduated, uh, the institute where I graduated from, Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Medical Sciences, Sevagram, that was actually built by uh, Sushila Nair, and she was Mahatma Gandhi's personal physician. So the whole ethos of that institution really was about uh, service and as part of the and community service, really. So the, as part of the internship program, uh, we had the options of working in villages, or and one of the options was living in this leper colony with the lepers as a medic, of course, as a trainee doctor, because there would be other doctors who would be coming and visiting. So yes, it was quite interesting to live three months, you know, in a leper colony. What was that like? I think it was it was life changing. It was really life changing. I mean, I've I'd had experience of seeing lepers before. I mean, in India, there are many, you know, you, you'll see growing up in India, you'll see beggars on the streets. Some of them are lepers, but more, you know, but I'd had experience of going to a leper colony um, about six, seven years prior to that when I was in school. Um, that. That had been actually quite, it was heartrending the first time I did go to the leper colony. And this is, I'm going back to school now. Um, I was the uh, social the uh, social convener of the school, really. And um, what we had done was that uh, we used to raise funds. We used to have like a school fate. And the funds that were made out of that, they were taken to this leper colony uh, so that people could buy tarpaulin to sort of protect themselves uh, from the open, uh, from, from the rains, from the monsoon rains. So these are people who, who are just like, you know, this is, they were quite, um, quite far advanced with leprosy, couldn't really, you know, some of them would be like sitting on little wooden carts with wheels and pushing themselves around. And they didn't have any housing, uh, no roof, no shelter. So this tarpaulin, they would put the tarpaulin over like four sticks and sort of protect themselves from the uh, monsoon rain. So I'd had that experience before. This time when I stayed in Dattapur, uh, which is of course linked to the hospital. Uh, so we were, you know, the safety element was definitely there because it was an organized uh, thing. So we had our own um, accommodation, which was like a small one room set, myself and another colleague of mine, another girl uh, with whom I was doing internship, both of us stayed in that house. We used to go in the morning to do a clinic and um, so in the afternoon, if you went to a gar- to the garden and sat on a swing, there would be lepers around you. So um, I think what I learned from that was the courage that I saw in the lepers to uh, try and manage to get some semblance of dignity. That was one thing. The other thing was 
compassion, finding that within myself. I imagine it must have been quite a moving experience. I think um, I think it's uh, it's something to learn from them, isn't it? To to for me for the people that I saw, for them to wake up in the morning knowing that you're so disfigured that you're not accepted by society. Uh, that you've been put in this uh, center where you are getting treatment, where if you went outside, people would get scared of looking at you because of the disfigurement that you have. And bear in mind that this is what I'm talking about is 1990. So things have moved on. But at that time, that was that was huge, you know, to be living with people who everybody around you, nobody looked normal other than myself and the few other doctors and nurses who were there. Everybody else was really advanced with their uh, leprosy. So, you know, I think I think that was emotional, seeing their courage, drawing strength from the fact that, um, that people could live like that. So, you know, finding that courage within. Also an understanding of how privileged my life was. That, 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 that was, again, something to bear in mind. And also accepting that life is just not fair. You know, life is not fair for people, for everybody. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just the, it's just fate or destiny in a way, isn't it, that, that somebody has had that. And you could argue that point, you could say that, you know, if you lived in the Western world, where, you know, the, these things don't exist, but then, you know, India was a developing country at that time. And, you know, uh, again, also pride in the fact that there were people, medics, the, the university that I worked with, the med school that I went to, that they were also engaged with trying to make lives better, helping people improve their lot, you know, so to be a part of that ethos, to be a part of that group. So there was a sense of pride as well. I have friends who who went to med school and their experience was, you know, a lot of learning, a lot of book work, a lot of work in, in inverted commas, standard hospitals. But to have that that ethos of helping others that must have been a a big difference to you in terms of your learning process and and your your participation and reaction to people's I totally agree with that because I think going to the med school that I went to and prior to that the school that I went to I think they have been instrumental in in uh, reinforcing the the Hindu philosophy that I was that I grew up with which is seva parmo dharmo seva means service and parmo is supreme and dharmo is dharma, you know. So I grew up with it being taught to me philosophically that service came before it, you know, that was the ultimate thing that you could do. And this was reinforced in my school. And that was interestingly from Jesuit nuns. And that was further reinforced by medical school, which was Mahatma Gandhi's personal physician, you know. So it was based on uh, on really always putting the other person first. Somebody else came before you, always. And it's something you've done uh, from a, a very early age, I understand. Even when you were at school, during the school holidays, you were helping in hospitals, essentially yeah. makeshift hospitals. Yeah, makeshift, makeshift hospitals. And the school had that ethos of, uh, so this is a very really special schooling, uh, St. Xavier's School, Bukaro Steel City. And um, so that school was run by uh, Jesuit nuns. And uh, uh, I, particularly one nun, I will always remember, Sister Bertha Wilcox, she was English. And the principal was an Australian father, Father McNamara. And in winters, in December, around Christmas time, the Rotary Club of the city would arrange for doctors to come in and operate in the school um, and, uh, you know, cataracts. 
so simple things but people from the villages would all you know so there would be uh, vans which would go out with loudspeakers identify people and these are these are doctors who would have been going into villages into the hinterland and when i say hinterland this is really the interior of india at that time it was quite underdeveloped and they would identify the patients who needed surgery and the school would open its doors the classrooms would be converted into makeshift hospitals and we would work in shifts so uh, the night shift was always done only by the boys and uh, the day shift would start uh, from i think it was 5 to 1 uh, and then 1 to 10 and then 10 to 5 those were the three shifts so the senior most uh, students would uh, be the in charge people and then classrooms would be converted into little wards so each classroom would house about four to five patients and you would spend the whole day in that classroom uh, making sure that these people who had had the surgery uh, would you know they could, they would they would have their eyes like you know one eye full cataract the other eye operated can't really see taking them to the toilet helping them with their clothes making sure they were warm they were comfortable chatting with them feeding them so yeah and it was good fun you know it was <laughs> it was it was great i i even remember that on one afternoon because i was so uh, interested in medicine i was asked to come in and see a cataract operation in this makeshift room so uh, in fact my first exposure to patients and medicine in a caring role was there and how old were you at this point I was 15. So it's really been like a a a calling almost for you for to, to do medicine. You know, it's what sort of ingrained in you. It, you know, it is part of part of you. Yeah, med medicine is is a vocation. It is a calling for me. I can't think of having done anything else really. Um if I didn't do medicine, I suppose um I would still be doing public service in some form or the other. I cannot see myself having done anything else really. And tell me about your your role now on like a day-to-day basis with the NHS. So I'm a consultant neurologist. I lead the motor neuron disease service uh, in Leeds. So we are looking uh, at uh, patients who have a terminal neurodegenerative life limiting progressive condition. And um it's hard in the sense that you know because we know that motor neuron disease doesn't have a cure. so trying to make sure that there is symptom management that uh, enabling my patients who are dying to live in the now that must be a, a very difficult area of medicine to work in because i suppose most people enter medicine to save lives and i suppose you're saving the life of today rather than the life of the future if that makes sense I think saving lives is is a very important aspect and it is we we all, when we talk about medicine and doctors we do talk about saving lives but it is also about death which is the only certainty in life and uh, what i have found is that uh, we all prepare for events in our lives that may never happen so you know you you think that you'll get a job that you will go for and then you don't get the job or you know you think that this is the city where i'll settle down or this is the person i will live with for the rest of my life and uh, things don't go to plan but the one thing that we are absolutely certain of is death and we never plan for it i think saving lives is really an important part for uh, for doctors and that is what we think that we are do going to do when we enter medicine but death and dying cannot be separated from uh, saving lives and uh, every doctor is prepared is trained to have those conversations and i think for me it is really important that my patients live life fully live life in the now they have the best quality of life but then they also have the best quality of death
we only talk about quality of life we don't talk about quality of death but quality of death is as important if not more than quality of life it's very much a taboo subject isn't it we don't discuss how we want to die where we want to die who we want to be with the circumstances surrounding that we don't even discuss funeral plans i think we really need to have more open conversations about death and dying and uh, i think again my past my childhood my growing up in india uh, has actually brought about some changes in the way i practice um, so when i took over the directorship of the leeds mnd care center as you said you know death is a taboo topic so even while patients knew that they had motor neuron disease the conversations around death and dying were not as open as i would have hoped them to be now if you remember i've trained in india in uh, in this institute back in the 1980s i joined medical school in 1985 and that was a time when people would come to this to, to this university hospital from 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 far away places so if you lost your parent or your spouse or your child or your friend and then you had to take a dead body back with you to that distance in that in that climate in that environment with very very poor resources that was just impossible it was it would create a lot more hassle it would you know it was really difficult so when patients were dying we would talk about death and dying very openly and it was always about go home diatom surrounded with your family and friends um so that you can have a good death rather than have a person who's died and then the rest of the family and these are people who are really very very poor they would not be able to afford to have a private ambulance or a private um uh, you know vehicle to to take them back to their place so again you know how do we manage death and dying so there were so i grew up and i trained and i did my md in general medicine our conversations were about death and dying at home surrounded by the people that you love and uh, i think it is very easy to um, to distance yourself from death for people but we shouldn't people should be given the choice of being able to die at home surrounded with their friends and family if that is their wish they may wish to go to a hospice they may wish to you know and in certain case and this is this i'm talking about is planned death about knowing that you know you're going to you have a terminal condition so there there are different scenarios of course for every patient uh so yes so when i came over uh the conversations were uh, very open and i still remember that um you know you 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 when you join a team you bring your own ethos to the team so um and and that stems from your past your childhood your experiences you're having worked in different cultures in different countries um which i've done plenty of i think now one of the things that makes the lead at leeds mnd team special is that we openly talk about it patients welcome those conversations it's in their mind anyway and they want to talk about it but they themselves are afraid to to talk about it sometimes they just need that opening sentence of you know have you thought about what you would want for yourself towards the end and that just opens a whole conversation and it can be um it can be quite emotional but i feel that um, i'm enabling them to make their choices i'm enabling them to be in the driving seat and i and my job is to make sure that i do what they think is right for themselves within reason of course <laughs> i read an article recently and it was written by somebody who had a terminal illness and they were talking about how in some ways 
being diagnosed with a terminal illness had been one of the best things to happen to them because for them it was a it was a a, a long it was going to be a long terminal illness and it had made them focus on the now and they had achieved so much since their diagnosis and had seen so much and had uh, made so many relationships and friendships and you know had so much love like surrounded by them that they don't actually think they would have achieved all of these things had they not received their diagnosis which was a real head spin to read for me to read in an article but I guess that's part of your job as well enabling people to live the lives that they want yeah I what what you are quoting about this article I've not read this but uh is absolutely spot on and this is something that I've mentioned in uh the book too many reasons to live written by Rob Burrow I was interviewed in that and um and in that I've said that once you know you're dying this it's almost like a switch and your focus suddenly changes and all the baggage that we carry with ourselves about, you know, though that happened to me, this happened to me, that one did that, this one did that, or I didn't get this or I didn't get that. All of that disappears the minute you know that you are dying and you're suddenly filled with, uh, this is true for my motor neuron disease patients. They are all in a place of, there is a journey, there's a journey of acceptance, but you, you can see that change happening. You can see, I, I can just see how they, they, they just switch off and into this amazing place of absolute love and wanting to do the things that mean the most. The thought process totally changes. You start living in the now. And that, and that is the ethos of the Leeds MND team. That is, that is the ethos with which uh, I grew up and which has become, which is a personal philosophy for me. And uh, I'm not surprised to hear, to hear about it from somebody else. Now, you mentioned Rob Burrow there, and of course, he very famously has motor neuron disease. Uh, you are his consultant neurologist. And it was your idea to build this, the Rob Burrow Centre for Motor Neuron Disease. Uh, five million pounds is the price tag. Funds are being raised all the time. But the idea behind that is very much in line with this um, philosophy, isn't it, of living in the now. And rather than creating a in inverted commas, clinic, you're looking to create this peaceful environment uh, that helps people live in the now, that's serene, that instills courage and hope and that just feels safe for patients and families. And where did this whole philosophy for you of living in the now that seems so central to you personally and also to the work that you do, where did that come from? So I think um, I have had early exposure to death and dying. So when I was a teenager, Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of uh, India, was shot dead. And this was followed by a genocide of the Sikh population. And the city where I was living, Bukharo, we were not untouched either. It's, it's all in public domain, what really happened there. And I remember as a teenager standing, watching from my window, army trucks rolling in and the Sikhs being sheltered in the school. I remember... The nuns that were in the school, our teachers, going from house to house asking for two potatoes and an onion from every house so that food for these Sikhs could be made. And I remember going to the uh, school after things had calmed down to meet a friend of mine who's, who had been affected. I remember standing on the veranda of my house watching this, uh, watching another classmate's house burning uh, in, in the genocide. And that, I think, uh, imprinted on me that, you know, things can change within seconds. 
The other thing that happened was that um, uh, I was living in Manipur, which borders Myanmar, and uh, uh, Manipur has had militancy for uh, for many many years. The last seven eight years have been uh, much better. But I remember as a young doctor being threatened by militants wielding an AK forty seven. So you know, for me, it was like I remember my, one of my friends. He was a police officer. He was killed by militants, and so this. This death and dying, knowing that your life can be over within seconds, that has really imprinted upon me the importance of living in the now. The other thing that happened was that I was sixteen and a half when I left school to join med school, and before that, one of the the nuns, the, the English nun that I was talking about, Sister Bertha Wilcox, wrote in my uh, end of year book, uh, quote unquote, "Between the relinquished past and the untrodden future lies the holy now, the dwelling place of God." And then she goes on to say, "May your present be filled with happy memories and your future with hope, but may you live fully in the now of each moment as it comes to you. This is the secret of joy and peace." So, given that sentence of "May you live in the now," and having seen the Sikh genocide, having faced uh, the Manipuri militancy. I think, and then now doing motor neuron disease. I think the ethos, uh, my personal ethos, has always been about living in the now, and I think one doesn't realize how much it spills into your professional life as well. So that was Dr. Agam Young, consultant neurologist at Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust. Quite a remarkable woman, I think you'll agree. Coming up on next week's episode, we meet Chris Parsons, who is a consultant paediatric general and neonatal surgeon with a special interest in colorectal at Leeds Children's Hospital. Now, what people don't realise about him is that he had an early midlife crisis at the age of 30, completely left his career and in fact left the country as well because he became part of a team who helped a man who was paralysed from the neck down become the first in the whole world with his level of injury to drive himself from Stoke Mandeville Hospital all the way to Cape Town. You do not want to miss it. Uh, That episode is out next week and to ensure you don't miss it, make sure you click follow, rate and give us a little review whilst you're at it. I'll see you next time. Heroes Unmasked is an under-the-mast audio production.